0: Why don't we turn in our Bibles this morning to James chapter 5. James chapter 5 and verses 1 through 11. If you'd like to use one of the pew Bibles in front of you, you'll find the reading on page 1013. And as you turn there, just a a brief glimpse, Lord willing, into the future. Uh, We have what seems to be probably two more weeks in the letter of James, this week and next. And then uh, the plan is tentatively to begin a series of In Romans chapter 8, not the entire letter of Romans, but just chapter 8, we want to do something that's short, something that's sweet, and something that is dripping with grace. Because I don't know if you're anything like me, you'll know that James has been challenging, convicting, kind of getting into our our, our lives a little bit. So Romans 8 seemed like a good place to go. So we say that just for your encouragement, maybe you'd like to read Romans 8 over the course of the next few weeks. Some of you might even want to memorize Romans 8, which would be a wonderful use of your time. It's 30-something verses. I think you could handle it. Um, So that's the plan moving forward into the fall. So James for a couple more weeks, and then Romans chapter 8. Uh, But this morning we find ourselves again in James 5, 1 to 11. And as we turn there, we read these words. Come now, you rich. Weep. Are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from Thee. Father, we pray this morning that as we come before you with our Bibles open, that you in fact would speak through your word, that you would change and transform us, that as we talk about this issue of the return of Jesus, which is so often accompanied by speculation and division and disagreement, that you would help us to live differently in light of your return. Lord, we need your help. Pray for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. The final stretch. That joyful moment in time in which you realize that there is more behind you than there is ahead of you. Some of us traveled this summer, and at some point, I'm sure, you looked in your rearview mirror if you're a parent and saw a group of very happy, very patient children, and you said to them, Don't worry just a couple more hours, we're on the final stretch. Others of us here in the congregation are getting ready to embark on our senior year of high school or college, encouraged by the fact that after all of this hard work, we're finally here, the final stretch. Others of us, even this morning, are expecting the birth of our first child. And what has seemed like an eternal pregnancy, Has finally given way to the third trimester. Your husband says to you, don't worry, honey, you're on the final stretch. Some of us, after 30-plus years of employment, are waiting for that day when we clock out of work for the last time or leave the office. Retirement, we've reached the final stretch. That moment in life when there is more behind you than there is ahead of you. But see... Final stretches are are interesting things because even though we know that the end is near, it often feels like that final stretch is longer than everything that preceded it. The young child does not want to hear that there are only a couple hours left in the drive. The student who's been laboring through 11 grades does not want to know that really it's only going to take one more year before graduation. And gentlemen, let me help you. The last thing your pregnant wife wants to hear from her very not-pregnant husband is don't worry, honey, your suffering will be over soon. Seems like approaching retirement with all of the planning and preparation that goes into it is the most taxing and challenging of all. The final stretch. filled with joy on the one hand, challenges on the next. Well, here in... James, we're told, in a way that maybe some of us haven't really ever really wrestled with, each one of us in this room, whether we're a believer or we're not a believer, has entered into the final stretch. If you look down at the text with me, you'll see this over and over again. In verse 3, James tells us we are in the last days. Verse 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. And even more striking and to the point, verse 9, the judge is standing, even now, at the door. The final stretch where all of history will finally give way to the return of Jesus. And just like any other final stretch, the anticipation for the return of Jesus, it it fills us with all kinds of joy when we're thinking biblically and properly, but gives us a set of challenges that other things really don't. If you're here this morning you're not a believer in Jesus, you may be thinking to yourself, what is all this obsession from Christians about the return of Christ? It hasn't happened yet. I'm beginning to think it won't happen ever. There's no place for superstition in this life, so I'm going to go back to living how I always have. Some of us have been following Jesus for some time, and we've realized that the cost of discipleship, which we pay on a daily basis, causes us to cry out, Lord, when will you come? We have this sneaking suspicion, don't we, that the people who told us we were going to live our best life now were completely out of touch with reality and definitely out of touch with their Bibles. Life is hard. We cry, Lord, come. We're talking this morning about the return of Jesus, a topic that, as we prayed, is so often filled with speculation, division, theological argumentation. But what James wants us to know this morning is that there is a practical difference in the life of the person who knows that Jesus is going to return. The message of James chapter 5 is very simple. That to live by faith through the final stretch, we have to know that the Lord will soon come to judge His enemies and to save His people. Judge His enemies and save His people. That's the practical outworking of the doctrine of the return of Christ. And I want to just work through the passage and unpack that one point to the next and know first that the Lord will soon judge his enemies. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Now stop. I thought long and hard about calling this point, the Lord will soon come and judge the rich. It wouldn't have been unbiblical to say that. You would have been able to find my point right there in the text if you have a Bible open in front of you. You have to acknowledge that this message didn't preach well in ancient Near Eastern Jerusalem, and it definitely doesn't preach well in 21st century Neshanic. Come now, you rich. But what I want more than anything else is for us to see what James is saying in context. We've been working our way through this letter. We saw in chapter 1, verse 10, that James encourages rich believers to boast, to glory in, to be proud of their humiliation, their lowly place in the kingdom. In chapter 2, James presented this scenario in which there's a poor man and, quote, a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing coming into the assembly of believers. James has used Abraham as an illustration of faith and works, Abraham being one of the wealthiest men in the Old Testament. And here in this passage, he calls upon Job, also not unfamiliar with possessions, as an illustration of patience and endurance. So it's important that we understand, not only for the understanding of the text, but for our own application, that James is not condemning the wealthy for being wealthy. He's condemning the wealthy for being ungodly. It's not wealth in general that James is condemning. It's laying up treasures in the last days, verse 3. It's keeping back wages by fraud, verse 4. It's living in luxury while others are dying, verses 5 and 6 a specific kind of wealth that James condemns. Now speaking generally, painting with broad brushstrokes, the people that James is writing to are believing people who come from a poor agrarian background. They're almost, you might think, migrant workers. And in their context, the, the source of their opposition and persecution and challenge in life comes from wealthy landowners and they work for it. And what these poor, humble believers need to know almost more than anything else is that the Lord is not unaware of their suffering. Everything that James says here runs along the lines of Romans chapter 12, 19. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay Do you ever cry out for justice? You watch the news, you see how broken and damaged and tattered the world is, and you think to yourself, whether you're a believer or not, you think, if God is good, how can any of this happen? We need to know that the Lord will soon judge his enemies. James takes us right into the courtroom of God. And as we approach the courtroom, we, we see the prosecution come, as it were, into the room, and the prosecutor says, Exhibit A, your stinking, corroding, putrid, pathetic possessions. He says, look at this. Look at these garments bought at top dollar only to find themselves passing through the digestive system of an insect. Look at this gold and silver that once shimmered in the light, now completely dulled, corroded, rusted, useless, worthless. Look at all of these things that you have stored up. What do these things cry out guilty for? Verse 3, you have laid up treasure in the last days, like an athlete who holds the ball rather than taking the game-winning shot as time expires useless, worthless stewardship of possessions. Now, if that's not enough, if that's not vivid enough, then the prosecution comes with exhibit B, verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Look at your savings account. Aren't those the wages that you owed those who worked for you? Let's bring this audio recording in of the prayers of God's people as they're crying out for justice against oppression. The verdict is rendered guilty. Now, there is something very unique happening here in this passage. It's akin to what you would read in the prophet Obadiah, which I'm sure all of you did earlier this week. Um, But in the prophet Obadiah, what you have is a prophecy against Edom, announcing the destruction of Edom, but it's written to, delivered to, signed, sealed, and addressed to the people of God. Now here James is writing to Christians, James chapter 1, verse 1, but he takes a pause from his argument to address this issue of their oppressors. And the whole purpose of all of it is to say, God and His kindness to His people, I'm not unaware of your suffering. Now, what we have to do here in 21st century Western PA is we have to climb what we call the ladder of abstraction a bit. Because none of us, I would imagine, are being withheld wages because of our faith in Jesus. But that is not to say that we should not or are not being persecuted or opposed for our faith. I have observed in Christian circles that there's this surprise now in the 21st century, that the world behaves like the world, as if somehow or another in the course of human history, at this stage in the game, the world has decided to just erupt against Christianity and the church is being pressed and battered and beaten in a way that it never has. Because the world never changed. The world has always been the world. It was as true in first century Jerusalem as it is today. The church is a small thing, in the eyes of those in power. It's a weak thing. It's worthy of ridicule and, and shame. So James says, listen, don't think for a second that because that's the case, that that's the reality now, that God is unaware of what's happening. He will judge his enemies. I'm willing to bet that there are people here in this room this morning who have a sneaking suspicion that the fact that you're constantly passed over for that promotion or maybe that uh, raise in your pay doesn't doesn't have anything to do with your performance. It might just have something to do with your Christian convictions being known in your place of work. Others of us uh, here this morning know the painful reality of having family members who ridicule, who shame you for your commitment to Jesus. You weep over those people. We know what it is to have family and friends who have no understanding why you would ever Die to self to live to Jesus day after day after day. Pay a high price in society to identify with Jesus. That's the facts. But Don't you know, isn't it comforting to know this? That the Lord will soon come and judge his enemies. That's the purpose of his coming. To right all the wrongs. To bring justice where our hearts have cried out for it year by year by year. Now this sounds harsh, painful, may even sound judgmental to some, but it's not as if in the behavior and the response of Christians as Christians that those who oppose and persecute and malign and ridicule the people of God are without witness. You see what James says, verse 6? You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Our first instinct when we're persecuted, oppressed, ridiculed, maligned, whatever it is, our first instinct is defend. Well, I'll tell you. Well, I'll do this. Well, I'll that. Look at what the text says. The righteous person does not resist the persecution. Why? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it really mean this morning to follow Jesus? That's an important question. It means, among other things, to follow the one, Isaiah 53, 7, CSB, who was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. You mean the God of the universe? In the face of persecution, he didn't even speak? No. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep, silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. Persecuted, maligned, ridiculed, crucified. It's an encouragement to know that Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserve. So we might follow him. Transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God. and might be treated even as Jesus was treated. See, to really understand and believe that Jesus is returning, more than just simply something that we say... As Christian people in polite society, to be a Christian person who believes that Jesus is going to return, we live in the constant reality that he is going to set all wrongs right, and we rely on that. We do not resist. We do the next thing. See, here, there's a, there's a flip side to this, and it's much happier, I promise you. Not only when Jesus returns will the Lord judge His enemies, but secondly, He will save His people. Don't you ever cry out, God, I, that's too much for me to bear. Can I get a little relief? James here says that God is not unaware of our struggle and our suffering, and He tells us. That when Jesus returns, He will save His people. And we have got to know that. Really know that. And I will know that I know that by the way that I live. There will be no abstract theology for James. You see what he says? Verse 7, "...be patient, therefore, brothers." In light of everything I've said about the judgment of God's enemies, the way that he's going to right every wrong, set history right, be patient. Three things James tells us. If we really know that Jesus is going to come and save his people, be patient, stop grumbling, read the Bible. Be patient, stop grumbling, read the Bible. Be patient. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains? You also, verse 8, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do you think James wants us to be patient? Well, that's hard in our society, isn't it? Because absolutely everything that we experience mitigates against our patience. We go online, we order what we want, We pay for the two day shipping because who can wait three or four? You remember when you used to wait four to six weeks? (laughs) I want it now. If it's a book, forget a physical. I want to download it right now. I want to be reading it yesterday. There's no patience. If someone doesn't put their foot on the accelerator three seconds after the light turns green, I'm a basket case. There's no patience. See, the beauty of life in this world is that God sprinkles these little bits and pieces into our lives that kind of teach us lessons, because in the midst of all the impatience, you still have to go to the doctor. And you know exactly what it's like when you go to the doctor. You go into the doctor, you check in, you sit down. You look at a rack of magazines that you can't figure out for the life of you who reads these things. (laughs) Kayaking quarterly. Who would subscribe to kayaking? Who is this doctor that thinks that I would want to read that? So you sit down and you start flipping the pages of Kayaking Quarterly, and you wait for the person to open the door, the door fling open, the person with the, the clipboard, and you know as soon as you see them that they're going to call your name, so you start to pull yourself up out of the seat until they don't. So you sit back down, you flip through Kayaking Quarterly. The next time the person opens the door with the clipboard, you go, oh, here we go. No, you don't. Sit back down, and you do that for a completely inordinate time. You wonder who's paying these doctors that, anyways, you wait but the kind of waiting you're doing is not the kind of waiting that we normally associate with waiting and being patient because you're eagerly expecting. You've forgotten entirely that the thing you're excited about is seeing the doctor, but you're, you're waiting eagerly. You're, the next time someone opens that door, it's me. The next time someone opens that door, it's me. That's what James means when he says be patient. Today's the day. Jesus is going to return today. I think Jesus is going to return this hour. Here we go. Be patient. Eagerly, expectantly wait. Believe. Trust the promise. God keeps his word. If he said he's coming back, he's coming back. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. Just look at the, the farmers. They, they're completely and utterly dependent on God to provide the rain, but they wait. They pray. They're, always, they're constantly looking. What's it going to happen? Today's the day. Today's the day what it means to be patient almost i will know that i believe that jesus is going to return when i'm watching for it okay lord today's the day come lord jesus here we go next person through that door it's me be patient secondly stop grumbling you see that verse 9 it's important that we see that verse 9 Do not grumble against one another. Have you ever heard that phrase, hurting people hurt people? I'm sure you have. There's a temptation, isn't there, that in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, we turn inward on one another. James said, what are you doing that for? you got enough trouble trying to tell a world that's hostile in mind alienated from god that there is one savior his name is jesus he commands everyone everywhere to repent you had enough challenge doing that and you guys are bickering about the wallpaper in the bathroom what is wrong with you stop grumbling quit whining stop complaining and you see why it's not a bare command look at the text there's a rationale given he says stop grumbling so you don't get judged Don't you know the judge is standing at the door? You ever had that experience growing up? You're doing something you shouldn't be doing. I'm sure you never did that. You're doing something you shouldn't be doing. You think you're getting away with it. And then there's that sobering reality, that moment where you turn over your shoulders and you realize that your mom or your dad or your teacher, whoever it is, is standing right behind you. And they just say, I saw it all. The point James is making is, do you really want to be having the conversation that you're having in the foyer when Jesus walks through the door? Is that what you want to be found doing, really? When Jesus comes back, you want him to walk in on you grumbling, complaining, whining about another brother or sister in Christ. That's how you want to spend your time. Is the judge's right at the door? I know when I'm long-winded because there's a group of people that start to gather right behind that curtain. You can't see them, but I can see them, and I start to sweat, (laughs) right? The judge is ready, ready to walk through. You really want to talk like that. Stop grumbling. Thirdly, read the Bible. Why do we say read the Bible? Look at verse 10. I will know that I really believe that Jesus is returning when I read the Bible. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Why are we so animated about the Bible? Because we believe that there's no healthy Christian life outside of the Bible. When I read the Bible and I face persecution, opposition, maligning, whatever it might be, when I read the Bible, you know what I realize? It's not a weird thing. It's not strange. I'm not caught off guard. It's not like oh my goodness, how could the Lord let this happen? This has always been the case. He says, look at the prophets. Let's consider Jeremiah for a second. Jeremiah, I'm going to call you into ministry, chapter 1. Here's the deal. No one's going to listen to a thing you say. You preach your brains out. Nobody cares, but go. How's that for a call to ministry? Consider the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We consider them blessed, James says, who remain steadfast. Consider Job. Do you know Job? You ever heard the story of Job? I'm sure you have, most of us. Job is this wealthy man. He's doing his thing. Satan comes to use New Testament language before the throne of God and says, I'd like to sift him like wheat. Take away his possessions. Take away his family. Take away his health. Let's see if he remains steadfast then. By the end of chapter 2, Job's a wreck. He's got nothing. His friends come with friends like these who need enemies. They're giving him theological discussions when he's just going, I don't know what I did wrong. But at the end of it all, Job is exalted to a place higher than when he began. So part of the problem with the story of Job is we like the beginning of the story, but the best bit is right there at the end. Ever read Job chapter 42? Where God restores him and blesses him. 42, verses 12, 13, and 15. The Lord blessed the last part of Job's life more than the first. He owned 14,000 sheep and goats, 6,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 1,000 donkeys. He had seven sons, three daughters. No women as beautiful as Job's daughters could be found in all the land, and their father granted them an inheritance with their brothers. You know the Lord's purpose, James says it's compassion, it's mercy. He's not trying to destroy you and your suffering. Job suffered. He really suffered. But at the end of his life, he's exalted above anything that he had ever experienced. At the beginning of the story, he's oppressed, tempted, tested, attacked by the evil one, abandoned by his friends. By the end of the story, he's restored. We find him making offerings for his friends. Possessing more than he could ever imagine. Does that remind you of someone? You should have to think very hard. The Son of God who comes tested, oppressed, uh, uh, attacked by the evil one, abandoned by his friends, tried, crucified, dead, buried, exalted. Above every name. Even now on the throne, making intercession for his people. You know the Lord's purpose. It's always been the cross, then the crown. You and I long for the day we should. We long for that day when we can stand with Jesus in the new Jerusalem without sickness, sadness, or death. But don't you know? Have you not heard that the road to the new Jerusalem Of necessity goes down the long, hard, dark road to Golgotha. We wait, we long, but in and through it all, the purpose of the Lord is compassion and mercy. What do you think the Lord wants to do with your life? That's a real question. I hope you're you're considering that right now. What, What does God want for you? What is God's will for your life? Is it for you to have a fulfilling life? A healthy life? A wealthy life? Is it for you to actualize your dreams? And come on, we got our sights set on really low things if that's what we're after. You know what God wants to do with your life? Colossians He wants to first of all transfer you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. And once he's done that, he wants to transform you into the image of Jesus so that you're more like him now than you were when you started. And that project of taking broken sinners and recreating them into a people for himself and making them look holy and righteous like his son never ends until its end until it's all over and in the meantime we suffer we long we wait we pray we lean in to good hymns and we say lord haste the day when my faith shall be sight and the skies be rolled back like a scroll the trump shall resound And the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Let me ask you, you got two more miles? Can you go two more miles in this race? I think you can. I think you can. I think you can by grace. But if you're going to do it, you're going to have to know that the Lord is soon going to judge his enemies, setting everything right, and save his people. Your warfare will be over. Hallelujah to that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the reminder that Jesus is in fact returning. Rather than that being just some simple point of doctrine that we say, to one another occasionally, that that actually impacts the way that we live in the here and the now. When we look around, it's the news, it's the things going on in our own life, our interactions with family and friends and neighbors, and we understand that we live in a broken world, a tattered world, a world where it seems like the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer. Lord, we cry out for justice. We thank you that you have promised, you have committed, you have set yourself to setting everything right. There's coming a time sooner than we could ever realize, the end of this final stretch where Christ will come, set up his kingdom, remove all that is opposed to him, the enemies that plague us, sin and death will be destroyed, and you'll save your people. So we pray that you would help us to look up, to be patient. Stop grumbling. Be hopeful, cheerful, loving, sacrificial. And to read our Bibles and to understand that nothing strange is happening, but this is how it's always been. the Cross, then the crown. Golgotha, New Jerusalem. Suffering, glory. Praise you, Father, in Jesus' name.